Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Thomas Kingston. Known otherwise as Tom. Tom is the owner of Spider Tracks and has been in the industry at least as long as myself and probably longer. But we're going to talk to Tom about the beginnings of his four wheel drive life and his life in general and, and how Spider Tracks came about. So I want to thank Tom. Thank you for coming on board and being our guest. This is our our one-year anniversary show, and uh, it's good to have you on board. Thanks, Big. Thanks for having me, and uh, congratulations on the podcast. You're doing a great job. Well, thank you. So let's let's get right into the meat and potatoes. Um, where did you grow up? New Jersey, or otherwise known as Jersey, for those that live there. And uh, I spent a lot of my life there and started Spider Tracks toward the end of my Jersey journey. And uh, eventually moved out to Colorado in 2001. So uh, Nutley, New Jersey, and of course went to school at NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology, where Spider Tracks started. Okay, let's let's go even earlier. When you were a youth growing up in Jersey, now was it Jersey Shore? You, you don't. I always, whenever I hear Jersey, right? I always think of Guidos, you know? So, so it, yeah, it's either the Jersey Shore or uh, the Sopranos. And funny enough, it's the Sopranos. So, it's the so Sopranos. So, the Sopranos were shot right outside my house. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, that's that side of Jersey. Oh, that side. Okay. So, <laughs> then uh, I don't want to mess with you then. Okay. <laughs> so, let's, let's talk about those early years going to school. Um, I know that you're you are absolutely one of the most intelligent people that I know. So I would imagine oh, you're you're going to let you down here then. Sorry, uh, <laughs> but no, I appreciate that. <laughs> now you've done some of the stuff that you've innovated and and put together and and a lot of that stuff we'll get into has been phenomenal. But your your background when you were going to school was there um, this is a question I ask almost everybody. Was there sports involved or was it more scholastic? Yeah, that's that's interesting. So 
um, on the, on the school side before college, right? So right. Uh, pre pre university. Um, on on the on the scholastic side, uh, for me, I just I love solving problems. I was a problem solving kind of guy. So uh, math and science always came easy to me. Everything else was insanely difficult. On the sports side, I I bounced around a bit early, but later on in high school, I got and a lot of people don't know this, but I got really into uh, uh, rifle. And we had a rifle team in high school. Uh, actually, in 95, I'm first in state. So this is a uh, nice. rifle, uh, prone position, 50 foot, no sights, uh, no magnification, that is. And um, I, I was really into that. So I did that for four years. And uh, it, it became a real big passion of mine such that, you know, after winning after winning nationals and, um, you know, and kind of having the background I did for, you know, math and science, I was uh, about about daily contacted by uh, by different groups in uh, the armed services like they were they were really into it. So I remember that being very interesting because it was never a thought in my mind. And it was like a daily notice. Hey, we would like to talk to you. We like to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, why? Like, I don't get it. And it was a lot of fun. I, I know some connotations on, on rifle teams today in high school are pretty much non-existent, but I could tell you. At least in the early in the early days, in the good days, it was an absolute blast. We had such a good time doing it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I would imagine high school right now, there's probably not very many shooting teams left. And just like there aren't, you know, the tech, unless you go to a, a, a school that is tech-orientated, like a tech high school, most of the tech or shop classes have, have disappeared. And that's a real shame. It's a, it is a shame. You know, I... I I got lucky, I guess. By the time I graduated high school, I had you know four years of rifle team, absolutely loved it. I had four years of mechanical drafting, so that was uh, no AutoCAD. This is all, you know, actual drafting on a draft board. Number two, four, six pencils, scumbags for those that know what that is, and uh, <laughs> absolutely, uh, you know, T squares and all. I, I was obsessive. I loved it, and it it, it transformed how um, how I, I worked in in college because everything went to then cad but having the uh, the background of you know line weights and where dimensions should live the size of the dimensions the distances of dimensions i mean all those small technicalities are completely lost and i i had that in high school for four years i also had uh, automotive i had an electric class i mean we had all these we had all these classes that I mean, I couldn't imagine not having them. I, I, I scratch my head today. It's It's got to be an interesting and, and, and oftentimes difficult for, for many students coming out because, yeah, a lot of these classes had disappeared shortly after I took them. So I, I don't know what the dynamic is today. Um, I know they have a lot of electives, so I don't want to say it's all gone, but certainly a lot of those are, are no longer in place. Yeah, I think as a, as a focus for those students that are – that are more inclined to the mechanical side of the world, I think that it's been greatly diminished and harder to find. At least that's my impression. Yeah, that's mine too. I mean, maybe we're the old guys and we're not looking at it right, but I have a, I have a, I have a niece who's uh, wanting to become a mechanical engineer, and now, now she has the joys of navigating uh, all of uh, this, this idea of remote schooling with everything going on. And she has, she has to take labs on the computer. I mean, she's just clicking buttons and it's not fun. 
Like I know it's not fun because she tells me it's not fun. So right. I, I feel, I feel for all of them. I, I hope that she even gets a return to some normalcy soon, but you know, on top of everything else, it's, it is, it is quite a bit different of a landscape. That's for sure. Correct. So then from high school and shooting team, let's jump right into that and, and go into, into nowadays or from there to now. Um, did you pursue anything with your ability, the abilities that you got on the rifle team? No, I didn't at all. I, I don't know why. I had a lot of fun with it, and I, I really o- only thought of it as, as an enjoyment, as, a, as kind of a sport. And uh, I, I didn't go any any further with it. Once once I got into university, you know, it was it's pretty nerve wracking. I, you know, going to college for the first time, pretty much was explicitly told that you probably need a backup plan because this is very difficult. Most most students drop out. I think the dropout rate for freshmen was 50 percent. And then after that, another 25 percent uh, by sophomore. It was it was a really high drop rate. And so the, the, the argument was, look, I, I don't know if you're going to be able to cut this, so make sure you get a backup plan. So there was really no time for anything else. And by the time I got into university, it was, oh, my goodness, I, I better just do this and only this uh, pretty much for every waking hour of the day. And my fallback was architecture. I thought, geez, you know, I really love architecture. So if this doesn't pan out for me, like most people are telling me it's not going to. I have I have architecture to 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 fall back on and that should be quite good. And right. uh, so that that was kind of my my dive into it. So freshman year, you know, loaded up with, you know, calculus and physics and chem and just like it's so overwhelming. I thought, oh, this is it. This is going to be the end. And um, so that was it. You know, there was no time for anything else, I guess, is, is the, the the summary of that story. I just it was all school. OK, so then let's let's look at. uh at those high school years, when did you, when did you start driving any kind of motorized vehicle? Was it pre-high school with motorcycles or was it just, you know, family, like here's a car type thing? Yeah, it, it was family. Here's a car type thing. I, uh, my, my first vehicle was a 1977 Buick LeSabre with an A-Track. It was cool. <laughs> and, uh, and I had a lot of fun with that. So worked on that car to get it up and running. It was from my, my grandmother. And I just thought, hey, that's wonderful. I'll have something to, to, to drive around. And the, the off-roading scene didn't really come into play until, until college. And that would have been um, about the second semester freshman, first semester sophomore-ish area, which was my second vehicle, which was a Suzuki Samurai. Uh, and that was my second vehicle. And how did you fall into a samurai? Yeah, that's that's I you know that's interesting. I I have to think about that one and scratch my head a little bit too. But I, I know that's when Eddie and I met. And uh, so Eddie, for for those that are are new to Spider Tracks' history, Eddie was my my business partner. He's retired from the company for a, a number of years now. So we started this together uh, back in, in NJIT. So he had the Suzuki Samurai first and started playing around. And um, I, I think in Jersey, it just was seen as something pretty ridiculous. You know, <laughs> we'd have to <laughs> drive out of Jersey to uh, there were some places in Jersey, but we, we typically had to leave Jersey to do anything. And uh, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I, I, I really dug the vehicle. I, I loved uh, a lot of the engineering uh, behind the vehicle and just it kind of clicked, watched what Eddie was doing. And I thought, yeah, geez, I'd like to do this with you. This looks fun. So it was pretty much, you know, him and I certainly in school. 
who had these you know crazy samurais playing around and and that's kind of how that was born well that's cool was there both of you having samurais were there others at the institute that had those type of vehicles or jeeps or anything um or was uh, no. it no no i know what i thought <laughs> no no, we had a circle of friends outside of school that then jumped on because it, it, it was it was very cool. You know, it just you you had to really understand it. It maybe had to wire be wired a little bit different. But but on campus, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, no, it wasn't like a popular thing. There was no uh, clubs for that. Now, I guess sidestepping a little bit, I should I should clarify this. So that, that was the off road scene. Now, in in college, we did have an organization called the Society of Automotive Engineers. Now. Through that organization, uh, we did build different types of vehicles, and one of them was a Baja-style vehicle that was amphibious. Now, this is a much smaller-scaled vehicle, and uh, that is an, an amazing organization for those that aren't familiar with SAE. Uh, definitely look into it. Um, a fantastic organization that uh, you know backs up automotive engineering in a very, very big way. So we, we did have that on campus. That, that was very popular. And so it was very school focused, of course, you know, extending from that into, you know, building up a samurai to drive to work. People thought it was cool, but that that wasn't necessarily popular. But SAE was. And so that was happening at the same time. Okay, great. I just saw an an ad on Facebook for volunteers for the SAE Baja program that's going to be in Phoenix, outside of Phoenix at the Toyota test grounds out there. Yeah. It's, it is so amazing. So imagine you now SAE, they have a a variety of different events that they do. The Baja one is, is the one that's closest to me. That's the one I spent most time on. The the idea of Baja was so fun because it was an undergraduate uh, focus only. So you could not have graduate students coming in and developing, you know, parts and components for the vehicle. It had to be built and designed by undergraduates you had design parameters that you had to that you had to fall within. There's the rule book is is pretty large, um, and it just got you thinking uh, as a creative engineer. You know, you 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 might be able to draw something, but that doesn't mean you can make it, and it doesn't mean it's going to work. So this was <laughs> a just a fantastic opportunity for students to you know to really take it to the end of okay, here's the vehicle, let's get in it and drive. And competitors come from all over the world. And at least at that time, and I think today it's still the case with COVID, it might have changed a little bit, but they have uh, three events that they traditionally have done. So there's like an East, a Midwest and a West. Now, the West is uh, like you would think it's, you know, kind of the desert inspired, you know, kind of go fast Baja. The East was uh, designed at the time, at least to build a vehicle that could go fast on the dirt track, but it would be amphibious. So you just drive it right in a lake. And you'd be able, you'd have to drive through the lake and then wow. get to the other side. Oh yeah, and it is it's madness. I mean, it's complete madness because you have a pile of undergraduates with no money trying to build these vehicles. It's wonderful, and so <laughs> and then take uh, it across the lake. <laughs> oh yeah, it's crazy. Like I remember one year. I mean, we we had we had rescue teams because like you would <laughs> you would go out on the lake and you would have these you know. Uh, you know, flotation on, on the vehicle, let's say, but let's say the left side just disconnected. Well, the thing barrel rolls underneath the lake. And it's, I remember the one event we did where we're literally diving in the lake, pulling people out. Uh, they held the event in Canada. So we had to actually go to Canada for the event. I mean, it was snowing. Like we were breaking through ice <laughs> with these vehicles. It was, it was utter madness to think of what we did. It, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Honestly, it, it, it all, 
you know, helps you, you know, become a better engineer for sure. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And, and too bad it was pre cell phone, smartphone so that oh, yeah. you don't have all the, the, everybody doesn't have, you know, 20 different angles on video from their, their smartphone. Cause that would make some, yes. for some great stuff. Oh, I, I agree. You know, we didn't, we didn't have the cell phones. And so, you know, the footage and stuff from the events is, yeah, it's all in the memory banks, I guess. But the other thing you didn't have back then, too, is you didn't have Google for every answer. And so, you know, you're showing up to events trying to beat 99 other teams. I mean, there's 100 teams registered. So you're trying to beat 99 other teams with not a whole lot of information. You know, you have you have the information of the vehicles that you did previous years and you have the information of the vehicles that have competed in previous years. A lot of of its word of mouth. But you would show up to this event and, you know, somebody Oh, I, I remember specifically it was Michigan State University. So they show up to the to the event and they figured out a way in the rule book for safety to make a vehicle that was about half the weight of everybody else because they found a supplier for a piece of tube that satisfied the safety requirements, but was about 035 wall or 030 wall. It was insane. Wow. But it, but it but it still it still satisfied the rules. And so they ended up with a vehicle that was you know almost half the weight of other teams, and with the motor being specced. You know, they were they were blowing past everybody. And, you know, you don't find this out until you show up and you're like, oh, what? So you know, there was no social media. There was no you know forums. There wasn't a lot of that. And so it was definitely a different world. Uh, you, you didn't have access to quite as much information. It was it was challenging. So how did you guys do that SA event? Oh, yeah. So by the by the time I finished out uh, at NJIT, we had a, a vehicle that was able to place in the top 10. We never won. Um, I, 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 we, would, we would definitely have needed more funding, I think, to be competitive to the very, very top teams. Um, I think we had good know-how, but we were a top 10 team. I forget the, the, the place that we had at the very, I think it was seventh, but I have to go back and check if it was seventh or eighth. It was around there, but we were top 10 uh, by the time I left. And, you know, it, lessons learned, you know, up until that top 10 car, all the vehicles we were building were fairly radical. Like we were one of the first teams to run a gearbox. We had reverse. I mean, you didn't have reverse in these vehicles. And so we would, you know, of course we would line up to the event and put it in reverse and back up and uh, check that out. You know, we were really cool, but, <laughs> but the vehicles, you know, arguably were just overcomplicated. Right. And, you know, one, one of the, one of the biggest uh, points that you get in this event is, is from the endurance race. So it's a four hour, endurance race so imagine that event in canada it's four hours of you know running on dirt track and you're you know you're going through lakes and breaking ice and it's just it's madness and the vehicle had to be quite durable so obviously complexity is a big deal here right if the vehicle is uh, more complex than it deserves to be you know good luck surviving four hours and and, and you know you can hear a lot of this now transforming into spider tracks but you know you do this for four years and you realize, geez, this vehicle needs to be simplified quite a bit. And it was that last vehicle that we worked on when I left. And it was it was like the least probably exciting vehicle. It was just so simple. And we were able to get into the top 10. And I'm like, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> yep. Keep it simple. Yep. yep. How did it come about with you and Eddie and the start of Spider Tracks? Yeah, so that that one that one is I think pretty easy actually. So yeah, you have this Suzuki Samurai, and of course, you know you any OE vehicle, you, you start doing stuff to it that wasn't by design, and 
you know, things don't quite work as well as they used to. So on, on the Samurai, you know, the, the, the biggest the biggest issue you'd run into with the larger tires was the front axle shaft and specifically the, the Burfield joint. And Toyota's had the same same issue. Right. So. Right. So, OK, so here we go. We, we, we put our 33s on this vehicle and now we're blowing up these these Burfield joints. So so Eddie actually had uh, an idea to uh, put a, a ring on on the Burfield joint. So it was a, it was a ring on the outside of the Burfield joint to try to you know keep everything together, and he had already uh, designed this thing. He was actually making a few, and so um, we bump into each other. I'm like, oh, that's that's really clever. Now I, I haven't I, I don't think I owned my Suzuki Samurai at this point. I think the Suzuki Samurai purchase came immediately after this. So he's making this little Burfield ring, and I thought, geez, that's that's a really that's a really cool idea. I'm like, man, I think we can get the price way down if i can you know work with the mill to supply this material in chromoly in a in a an extruded tube form and it would it would it would carve out all the you know the manufacturing time and i I think it'd be a pretty affordable product and uh eddie and i had known each other prior to this so he's like yeah let's let's do it that sounds like a great idea so you know we lined all that up and next thing you know we made a burfield ring uh, a really clean product wrote some instructions for it and we had a distributor at the time who thought it was a really cool idea uh, that was uh, uh rocky road outfitters and who's still rocking today and uh said man we, we want to sell that uh, can you make us some and we'll put it up on the you know in, in the catalog and see you know how it'll do and we thought geez that's cool that'll be exciting let's do that so you know we came up with a name spider tracks and wrote some instructions made some burfield rings heat sealed them up and shipped them out to Glenn at Rocky road and, and said, okay, let's see what happens. And that was it. That's, that's, that's how it started. So that was product number zero, zero, zero one, right? That is absolutely the very first product. Once you got through college, you guys are living, you're living in New Jersey, obviously, um, at least for the, at that graduation time, how long did you stay in Jersey? And then, uh, now talk about those years then and then jumping into Colorado. Yeah, so uh graduated in 2000, moved to Colorado in 2001. So from 2000 to 2001 it was, and it worked out to be about a year. Myself and my wife at the time focused on spider tracks uh almost 100%. I was 100% and then and and then she was uh part-time. Um Eddie was a uh, part-time as well. Um I, I had graduated and decided to do spider tracks full time to see, you know, what we could make of this. So that was that was the transition from graduation to getting ready to move out to Colorado, which I think ties into, you know, why Colorado, you know, what what made us jump there. So, you know, when we were talking before about you have this kind of lifted, modified, tricked out Suzuki Samurai, you want to go four wheeling, where do you go? So in Jersey, not many places. We had the uh, the down by the shore, like we had talked about before and the barons um at beacon new york we would go to quite a bit so new york state had a couple places to wheel not all technically legal so that was always challenging but <laughs> you know whatever <laughs> we're young so i will just go do it um but at the time of course it's all magazines right so still the internet's still very early um um it's 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 happening now but it's still very very early so the magazines are really driving a lot of the focus and uh, of course you know one of the best places to wheel by far is moab so we we would make the point every year to uh, load up the Suzuki Samurais, and it was always right 
it was the week always right before or right on final. So it, it never logistically made sense, but it didn't matter. We were going to do it. And we would load up the Samurais, uh, rent some Penske trucks, you know, throw the Samurais in the Penske truck. And it's a 42-hour straight drive. So we would drive <laughs> 42 hours straight to Moab, and we, we'd wheel for the week and drive 42 hours straight back to, you know, get, get our finals knocked out. And that drive from Jersey to Moab is, is pretty boring. Um, it's, it's actually really boring until you hit Denver, at least for me, that's, that's how I remember it. So it's, it's a really boring drive. And then you hit Denver and just the world changes. It's, it's, um, it's pretty amazing. I'm still blown away by it, but having really, I haven't traveled a whole lot, just the landscape, everything was just so dramatically different. Uh, I just instantly fell in love. I remember the first time coming through, um, a Colorado West of Denver, uh, I actually called my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now of over 20 years and said, you got to check, you got to check this place out. Like, this is amazing. So she came on the Moab trip the next year and, uh, I just instantly fell in love with it. Um, and Eddie was the same way. I know he fell in love with Colorado too. For us, it was, you know, Colorado, Arizona, like that, that the four States, if you will, you know, you had Arizona, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico. It, it was all just the landscape was just so radically unique. We just fell in love. So we were looking at it, right? And we were entertaining coming out to this area. And uh, that's kind of what was on our radar. So it all it all stemmed from Moab. Uh, okay. Our trips to Moab every year, that's that's what got us to consider coming out here, which, uh, which we did about a year after graduation. Do you remember what year it was that you first came out to Moab? Yeah, it would have been 1996. Six or seven, I think seven. I want to okay. say seven. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I think seven. Uh, was it? I a, think 1997. Okay. And was that a Suzuki-based event that was going oh, on, or just time-wise, that was the best for you guys? Well, it was Easter Jeep Safari, and, and the right. Suzuki Samurai presence at the time wasn't. It, it was big because we brought our group out, you know, and then we had some others that that of course are well known for Suzuki Samurais at the time. And, and we can get into that if we want. So we had we had a Suzuki Samurai presence that we would come out and kind of put on our show for the for the week. Even at that time, it was still a very you know Jeep focused event. But I would say it was certainly more presence then than it is today. Uh, we we had quite a number of Suzuki Samurais in our group when it was all said and done. So I, I thought I think we did pretty well with that. Awesome. Let's get into some of the products that you guys have created. Your first one was the Burfield ring. What was product number two and how many did, products did you have? Were you producing in that first year when you decided to move to Colorado? Yeah, that's good. So the Burfield ring was number one. We had a disc brake conversion that was definitely number two. And then we had an emergency brake kit all for the Suzuki Samurai. I believe that was product number three. Now, right about product number three was our first wheel spacer. Uh, kit, uh, which I put a little emphasis on because the wheel spacer line is still uh, a, a prominent line at Spider Track. So uh, that came about right around the same time as the third product. So that was either the third or the fourth product. And um, and then after that, we got into complete rear ends. Uh, we called them sidewinder axles at the time. We had developed uh, some simple uh, suspension things at the time. I'm trying to think. Was that? I think we did. I think we did have a quarter elliptic suspension kit when i was still in jersey i'll have to go back on the math but that's about it okay. and um a couple trinkets from there so 
Not a lot. Uh, t- to be honest with you, I mean, our, our family thought we were nuts because Spider-Tracks <laughs> wasn't, <laughs> hadn't really grown a whole lot. I mean, we, we had recognition for the early work we were doing, but we didn't really have a prominent line. Uh, you know, sales numbers really didn't justify, you know, a move like that. Uh, the only thing that justifies it is, you know, being young and ambitious, which is fun. So I remember when we loaded up Penske trucks, it sounds like a Penske commercial, sorry, but we loaded up Penske trucks. And we, uh, when we drove out to Colorado, I, I'll never forget. It was my, I think it was my, my, my wife's parents. Uh, I, I think they thought we were just joking. Like they didn't think we were actually leaving, or at least that's, <laughs> that was the impression I was under the day of. So when we drove the Penske truck in front of the house to say our final goodbyes, they kind of were like, really, I, I remember it, it was, it was like this look at the feet, like, oh, you're really leaving. And it's like, oh yeah, we've been talking about it. Like, what are you talking about? And I, I just. Because it was outrageous. I mean, really, in their defense, it was the most ridiculous thing ever. And so we just drove. <laughs> we just left. Set, set up shop. We were able to set up shop in... Uh, we ended up settling... Uh, I, I guess backtracking a little bit, right? So before before we made the commitment to, to move to Colorado, independently, myself and Eddie made trips out to Colorado. And, um, and in his case, he actually did some touring of Arizona as well. And just to kind of get our feet wet and and explore. Like, so we spent, uh, my wife and I spent like two weeks just driving around Colorado. So we took kind of like a a vacation. We rented a car and just drove around all of Colorado just to see if this like made sense, you know, if we, we, we were still excited kind of thing. And of course we left just really pumped and kind of picked an area of where we thought it would make most sense to settle down, which was an area between, uh, somewhere between Boulder and Fort Collins memory serves me right eddie came back and and came with pretty much the same conclusion he 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 loved colorado as well and an area somewhere between uh boulder and fort collins which is like northern colorado it's like north of denver on the front range right so so it just so happened that one of the suzuki guys that we would bump into in moab uh owned a machine shop that was located in longmont technically hygiene and said geez i i also own some buildings that i, I could rent to you like a little shop so you guys can kind of settle in and we can help you on some of the manufacturing because I got a full machine shop. And uh, we said, OK, that makes sense. Let's do that. And so that's how we ended up settling in that Longmont area for spider tracks. It's technically hygiene. And so, yeah, so that day when we were just we had our bags packed and we decided to leave, we obviously we knew where we were going. The family thought it was insane. And it was it was insane. We just had a couple pallets and some raw material on on, on a few pallets and some of our own personal belongings and <laughs> we started driving. It's it's pretty outrageous. It's kind of like the story of the uh, the pioneers, you know, <laughs> 150 years ago coming across the country. So, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it is. It, I mean, I'm I'm like laughing right now thinking about it. It is it is it is the most outrageous thing to think about. But you know, at the time we have no kids, uh, so you know, and and we're just you know we're recently married and. And, and just kind of loving everything. And it, that, that it was the right time, right? If you were going to do it, that's when you do it. So, you know, go for it. And uh, so we settled out here, you know, backtracking a little bit into school. So when, when we started spider tracks in college and uh, we incorporated in 99, so spider tracks actually started in 98, but we, we incorporated in February of 99. Uh, the, the, the reason why we were able to pull this off is uh on campus, we had a, a manufacturing program. It was called the Center 
of manufacturing systems. And this was kind of a grant that was given to the university to have this um, kind of allocation of space with uh, all of these machines, uh, CNC machines. We had, uh, you know, we had a, like a vertical mill, we had lays, we had a CMM, we had a, a sinker EDM, and stuff like that. Okay. And so the, the idea was the school was going to run this, this program, CMS. They were going to hire some of the best and brightest students was how it was pitched. And, and they, would, they would also work with one to two full-time engineers that was on staff. And, and this grant program would help local manufacturing business. That, that, was, that was the pitch. That was the idea. So, for instance, if you had uh, an idea for a patent and you were trying to get help with it, you, you, and, and, you know, you were on a budget, you, you, you could come to us. And if you didn't mind, you know, having some of the assistance of students and along with, you know, full-time engineer, you can get a really good value, you know, get a good bang for your buck and we can help you, you know, develop the patent, you know, do the drawings for it, do the research for it, actually make prototypes, that, that kind of thing. We also had manufacturers come in and, uh, you know, try to do process improvement. They were trying to figure out how to make something. And so we would use our machines so they can get some time on them. And we would, you know, we'd help uh, process improvement there. So um, ultimately, Andy and I, we're both, we're both with this uh, program. And so we, you know, we had access, you know, to us. I mean, young students, it just, it's like a gold mine, right? You have access to all these machines. So long story short, you know, five o'clock would hit and all the full-time engineers would go home and the lights would shut off. And then we'd sneak back in, turn the lights on and, and run the machines until, you know, 530 in the morning and then sweep <laughs> up and <laughs> pretend we weren't there. Uh, th that's that's how all this started. So we're we're doing this uh, for about two years, and uh, it it had gotten big enough to where we were no longer able to hide it. Like there was no pretending like we weren't sneaking in <laughs> and running all these machines. So was, was it the, the employees that gave it away, or what? <laughs> well, we're, we're we're the employees, and and right. the and the two engineers, the two older engineers, think it's the coolest thing in the world. So. No, it was one of those things where everybody figured it out, but like nobody wanted to talk about it because like, <laughs> I don't know, it's like it's, you know, I think they thought it was really cool, but geez, should we really be doing this? And, and I think ultimately it came down to like a liability thing. So we ended up working out an agreement with the school where we were able to rent the space uh, on behalf of spider tracks. And it was, I don't know, I don't think paid very little uh, so that it was like technically correct you know what i mean so right. but we were still doing the same thing we we worked all day and then you know we we'd shut down and then we just fire everything back up but now everybody knew about it uh, and i i include that story because when we when we moved out to colorado um we we, we don't have we don't have any machines uh we were using the school's <laughs> machines and we certainly hadn't made enough profit to you know set up a whole machine shop so when we partnered with our, our buddies uh, who had a machine shop, it was kind of like the best of all worlds. We had a, a small shop we were able to work out of. The machine shop was attached to that. Um, they allowed us to use the machine shop, but of course they machined as well. And that's, that allowed us to continue kind of uh, the, the pseudo setup we had in, in university, but you know now in, in the real world. And, uh, and then we were able to continue to grow from there. Excellent. So then when did you guys jump in and into the competitive scene? How did that come about? Yeah. Very early on. So the, the timing of all this is very interesting. In, in uh, you know, when we had started Spider Tracks and just before Spider Tracks, um, Arca, you know, that, that was a yep. thing. And um, so there's that, that just started. It was, it was pretty early stages. And Eddie was, Eddie got into it 
pretty early. Um, and we were working on it together, but with the Suzuki Samurai. So those that remember the yellow Suzuki Samurai, I mean, that 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 was Eddie. Okay. And that was very, very early Arca days. Now, we just kind of got our feet wet and to see, you know, oh, that's pretty cool. And we're pretty competitive by nature. I mean, one, we're from Jersey, so you're already competitive. But, <laughs> you know, we, we're, we're just coming out of school. I mean, we're doing SAE. I, you know, I had competed in rifle prior. Uh, in college, I was also in the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. I was competing there all the time. So competition was very much a it was kind of a normal thing for us. So it just kind of made sense. And we were watching it. So when we moved to uh, Colorado, uh, shortly after we had built uh, what, what, what became one of our first two chassis. So like a complete vehicle, which was just a big, big deal for us at the time, because you know, prior to that, you were building up an OE vehicle, you know, a, a Suzuki Samurai or a Toyota or a Jeep. And so we had built a full tube chassis, we called the DSTX, that's very, very early 2000. And it was a forward engine. And we built, you know, the housings. And it was just a big deal for us. And we started to play with a full tube chassis to see, okay, you know, is this where it's going? And then the sport just got very, uh, it, it, it kind of exploded on the competitive landscape, because this is right before the time and then of course through the time when we were introduced to the tiny mid-engine vehicles and you know the game changed quite a bit and we were absolutely at the forefront of all of that stuff and we got to be part of all of it um, but at, at a very young age i mean spider tracks was still very infancy when we were uh you know building our very first vehicles to compete in that it amazed me how fast the sport evolved from those first competitions with everybody, you know, you were really tricked out if you had a quarter elliptic set. And, you know, there's some technology, you know, you discussed it earlier that, uh, that never, I mean, it was a stepping stone, but it, it never went very far, um, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which you could answer, which you could explain a lot better than me. But I'm always amazed at how fast the sport evolved it, it it was it was exciting and it, and it did feel quick because you went from you know bringing a vehicle like a modified oe vehicle and just having an arsenal of spare parts and you were you were fixing this vehicle constantly you know through an entire competition and then it it, it feels like an overnight thing but and 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 i think of the tiny a lot because that was a very revolutionary build at the time where somebody was able to sit down, you know, kind of looking outside of the sport with an arsenal of knowledge on, on their side, uh, a lot different, you know, you're just graduating school and trying to figure this stuff out and, and, and you build a vehicle ground up for just one purpose, you know, and, and it's to win this competition. And it was like magic. I, I remember it was like magic. I was so in awe watching vehicles go from just, you know, pretty much breaking and, you know, fixing them throughout an event to climbing vertical walls that that looked like it was defying physics. Um, and and this is, you know, a guy who, you know, graduated in the top of his class at school. And I'm just sitting there scratching my head like, what is happening here? How did this vehicle do that? And of course, you know, now we're being introduced to, you know, weight bias in the tires. Right. This was not a thing like this stuff was just coming to fruition. And, you know, seeing that stuff for the first time, you were just in awe. Like it was mesmerizing. It was like watching magic. And I just we were so hooked on, you know, getting these vehicles to a competitive level, you know, building them better, lighter, stronger, you know, weight bias, 
you know, uh, a balance to the vehicle and, you know, w- what they could do and, and what was being presented to us at the events. Um, you, of course, included on that. You know, were, were you going to just make it technical or all of a sudden we had these climbs that required horsepower, which we didn't which, which we didn't need before. It wasn't it wasn't such a big deal. We just needed a low range. All well, that changes the sport. And so from that, you know, for me, it, at least it felt like from 2001 through 2004, there was just this insane explosion and focus on performance. It, 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 it does feel like it happened overnight. It was it was amazing. And, and I think overnight is is a perspective. Um, and in our sport, you know, four years out of the 24 years that the sport's been around, I guess, since the first mm-hmm. competition, is it was fast. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it felt it. Because it, every, every event, somebody was coming out with something new, you know, from the, the sniper um, or yep. avalanche engineering, you know, building the first, the first tube chassis that they built and some of the other things that came out. Um, and then of course, John Nelson and, and Bondurant with, uh, with tiny, um, that was, but they, they did something a little different than everybody else too, which is they built not only a vehicle, but a team, Yes, you know, and they, they took the sport to the next level because of the team that Nelson put together to campaign yep. that first vehicle. So, um, I agree. which, which really made a big difference and why they had such rapid success so quickly, I think is because they, they had a different focus that they, they weren't out there just to, to build the coolest car, but also to campaign it like nobody uh, had done yet. And to win and to their credit, this is not meant to discredit anything that they did. Cause I think everything they did was revolutionary. You had John on actually not too long ago. So, but for me, the, the, one of the big things that changed with them and the creation of this team is they were very private um, and, and rightfully so because they were, they were looking to win. So they were, they were running some new you know, kind of technology, some new parts, but everybody was talking about everything they ran. So, for instance, you know, if you ran a certain gear set, you know, you're able to talk to all the teams. How's it working? Eh, I don't really like it. You know, I break them in the event, this and that. Um, it, was, it was very, very open. And not that they were, they were not you know, cordial with everybody. I, I, I remember at the time, uh, John Nelson and his team with John uh, Bunderit, they, they were fairly private. So, you know, the amount of gear sets they were breaking, we, we had no idea. The amount of weight bias they were running, no idea. Like, these were details that they held pretty, pretty close. And that was not something we were used to. So um, there, was, there was a lot of that hurdle to get across, too. And, and yes. it did. It, it did change it into... Um, it still, the camaraderie is still amazing. I mean, that never went away, but it, but it became a legitimate competition. I will say that. I mean, it was, it was legit. <laughs> right. And people took it a lot more seriously from that point. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I mean, I'm thinking 97. I remember the first arc is from 97. Uh, I absolutely agree. Well, the formation of that team and, and what they brought to the table, uh, definitely solidified a transformation, which was, yeah, we, we can all have fun together, but by the way, I'm here to win. And it's like, oh, you know, and you're like, well, how much weight bias are you running? I'm not telling you. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, okay, wait a minute. Uh, we got to figure this stuff out. It, it was awesome. Well, I know when when Nelson when Nelson came to me and said, Rich, water is free. 
and you know we're talking weight bias and i'm yep and weighting the tires and i said but it's not because you know we're going to have to come up with some really crazy axle designs and the design of the courses are going to get more difficult and dangerous and you know the overall build of the vehicles is going to change so it's really not free and he goes <laughs> and he goes well it is water is free rich he goes yeah if you don't allow water in the tires, which everybody else has already agreed to do, because I was the last holdout, he goes, I'm the only one that can afford to weld $15,000 with the tungsten to the wheel, Yep. to each wheel. Yeah, and he goes, exactly. And I'll do it, but water is free. Yep, it, absolutely. And um, so I molded it over, I called him back, and I... Like you SOB. <laughs> <laughs> and so no, I went ahead and changed. That's great. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and to your point, um, you know, you're thinking ahead. You're like, hey, but this is going to demand, you know, better components. I mean, you know, keeping in mind that as revolutionary as, revolutionary as these vehicles uh, were, I mean, certainly to me and everybody else, um, it was still very uh, – it was still a very infancy stage on the development of all of these other components. I mean, we were still using sheet metal housings and off the shelf hubs that were really designed for other applications. We were getting them to work, but they, they definitely were not ideal. I mean, nothing on these early vehicles was ideal. And, and that kind of, that kind of gets us into, you know, a little bit of a segue here on when we decided to start shifting our focus from competing ourselves to taking a step back as the sport was growing, you know, very, very well, like it legitimately that there needed to be some better components. You know, do we really want to rely on just, you know, sheet metal housings and, and hubs that were designed for another application, or can we maybe develop something that's more specific for this? So not a whole vehicle approach, but more of an approach on the, the drivetrain components and right. could we improve on those? And that, that was a, a shift for us because we, we stopped, personally competing uh, uh, almost exactly at the same time as starting to come up with that spider nine axle line so that we could, you know, work with all the teams as opposed to feel like we were competing against the teams and see if we could make some, you know, progress in this market. Yeah. And you guys did a great job of that. One of the things that I always credit BFG, you know, BF Goodrich with was the way they came into the market and how they, defined themselves as the best tire and you had to run their tires if you wanted to be competitive which i oh, be yeah. i believe was not really the case and it isn't the case so much today as well um it's just they did a really good job of approaching the sport to making sure that the best drivers were on their tires with that being said I think that that you, as Spider Tracks, did a very similar thing by teaming up with Tracy. Tracy, arguably or or without a doubt, in my mind, and and I'll get arguments from others on this, is probably the best rock crawler of all time. Okay, competitive rock crawler. He, he understood the sport. He understood what it took to win. He did his homework. Um, he was fearless. 
you know, all of those things that it took, um, you know, highly competitive, sometimes too much so, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Never too much, right? But yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's, uh, he's just, you know, he's that guy. And you guys built a relationship with him early, at least it appeared that way to me, to where with him winning, it was like, okay, everybody, he's got that. I've got to have that to beat him. And Jesse Haynes kind of uses that now with his chassis until Tracy decides, if he ever decides to come out of retirement again. So <laughs> if you know where I'm going, but anyway, I do. So, yeah, no. And, and I, I love, I love the segue and I, I actually really appreciate that. I, I had never, I had never personally made any kind of connection between what BFG did. And for those that don't remember the early days, you know, you, you had actually Goodyear was a big sponsor in a lot of these events and you were, you were able to show up to an event and get free tires from Goodyear, even if you didn't win, it was just, you know, it may, it was just the most amazing thing in the world, but these were just, off-the-shelf tires uh, bfg at the time made a very special tire for a very selective group just as you said it was called the red label and this was a tire that was not dot approved it was a lot stickier than a traditional tire and it it yeah i mean you you needed this tire if you wanted to win um i i had never made the a connection between that and kind of the work that we did early on with some of the early competitors but i appreciate that i think that's a very fair i think that's a very fair comparison right. uh we we as we as we started to develop the Spider Nine line, yeah, we we wanted to you know work with guys to to help us you know really perfect it. So in the early days, it was uh, Twisted Customs um, and and Tracy Jordan. So that, that was kind of the connection there. And so we worked you know with Twisted Customs and Tracy Jordan. Tracy Jordan had known the Twisted Customs crew and Jason Pauly for a very long time, and so we got that early connection through there. And, right. Uh, yeah, it was it was a great relationship. I, I I agree. By the way, I you know as far as commenting on Tracy and his ability to rock crawl, I, I think I think he is the best. Um, I, I I'm not sure how much argument there. I mean, there's amazing rock crawlers, but I I have I have a lot of videos that you know we we had shared on the website when we had done the rock bug, and I spent a lot of time with Tracy because I got to not have to drive or spot. I just got to be outside the vehicle and watch it right in detail. Yes, and um, he would see he would just see lines. I, I, I just didn't see them. And I kind of pride myself on, you know, pattern recognition. And it's kind of what I do, you know, and I certainly got a lot better, uh, hanging out with Tracy. I could tell you that because he would just look at a course and just know what to do. And even as I'm trying to follow him with the camera and I, I like to kind of, you know, navigate the, the viewer through it. If you watch some of these old videos, like, okay, he's going to do this. He's going to do that. He would catch me by surprise. He'd do something I didn't see coming. I'm like, wait, what's he doing here? You know, and he'd come up with some outrageous, you know, rear burn, you know, maneuver to save a point, you know, on an obstacle that made the difference of him winning. And I'm just like, wait, what happened here? You know, so him and his brother, I, I will give credit to as well. Oh, yes. Just a phenomenal. Just a phenomenal team. And and just absolutely fun to watch for those that, you know, go to spidertracks.com. If you click on. um if you click on our, uh, I think the YouTube channel, and we have some categories on the YouTube channel that goes way, way back. So you're going to go kind of go back in time here. Um, I just following Tracy around with a camera at a lot of these uh, We Rock events, and uh, it's it's fantastic. It really is amazing to watch. Yeah, if anybody that's that's new to rock crawling is listening to this, and you want to get into competitive rock crawling, if you watch, I always recommend that teams come out 
before they're ready to compete and judge. And the reason that you judge is because then you get to learn right up close and personal what these guys are doing. You can see them with the controls. You can see what what they're thinking and doing. If you go back to the videos, like you said, of Tracy doing what he did and watching the videos that you produced, you're going to learn a lot. These guys, anybody that comes out to compete will learn a lot. Even some of the guys that are out competing now that uh, may be close to the top of the game should be watching some of that stuff just to get an idea of what you can do with a vehicle. You may have all the tools, but you may not be using the tools correctly, or you may not be using the, even knowing that the, the tools are there to be able to do something like what he would do. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, right now we have, you know, Cody Wagner and Jesse and Kyleman that are, that are really, really superb drivers. But you watch what Tracy did in those days, and some of the things that he came up with were just, you know, just outside the box thinking. It, it was one of the guys well, that he's one of yeah. the guys that when I'd set up a line or we'd set up a course, and you'd, we'd, before we set the cones, you go through all the scenarios, what somebody could do, how they would approach it for each set of cones. And he would constantly surprise me and do something that I didn't see. Yeah. You know. Yeah, me too. What's the event in Northern California? Donner. The, Donner. Uh, no, not Donner. A little bit more south. It was the one with the military vehicle that was just kind of like on, oh, the, on yeah. the course. That was I, I um, know, it was along I, the river, the Feather River outside of... I don't know. Uh, why am I drawing a blank on it? Yeah, I'm doing the same I, thing. I got... I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I got the video. So the video is on the website. It's the one I remember the most. So we show up to this event, and this is one of those events where Oroville. you... Oroville. Oroville, thank you. Yes. Yeah, Oroville. I, I, don't, I don't know. You were just like outside of the box, just going crazy as far as I was concerned. You you were using uh, broken down uh, military vehicles. There was this <laughs> massive climb on the other side that we had never really seen before. I mean, just massive, massive climb. There was, Actually, there was the two climbs. There was a climb on the backside that the only way that we could deem it possible was to have a spotter strap on the front of the vehicle so it wouldn't you know just immediately roll backwards it was such an insane event and it's the one that's freshest in my mind because i remember showing up there walking around thinking i i don't understand these lines like i don't know what's going to happen and it's the one if you watch any set of videos watch the one from oroville um with tracy where he's and 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 i think jesse's part of it too and he did phenomenally well there as well where these guys are just they're seeing things that i I, I'm just not seeing. And they're negotiating this new course in Oroville that was just uh, one of my favorites. It's the one that's freshest in my mind. Oddly enough, I don't know why, but I remember that event like it was yesterday. And it was it was, it was was one of those events where you could definitely see the, the, the people that shine and know what they're doing. I mean, the, the spread in the field was so dramatic from those that were winning to those that were trying to negotiate this new terrain. It was, it was impressive. It was amazing. Yeah, Oroville... I wished we could have kept going there. The owner of the property just made it impossible. Yeah. That's all I can say. And that's, and that's a shame. It's, yep. I have no idea if it's even being used anymore or not, but it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's too bad. That was fun. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about 
some of the product development that you guys did that came from from the competitive scene. And I know that a lot of your product line is based for was based on the competitive scene, whether it's the rock crawling or the rock racing with Ultra Four or what we were doing with Dirt Riot or NorCal Rock Racing, um, all the organizations that do that kind of stuff. Um, but it, you know, it, it all comes back to the roots of rock crawling. And, you know, let's talk about some of those products. Yeah, so in rock crawling, we, we came up with a product line called the Spider 9. And so our, our focus, oddly enough, we, we didn't do it intentionally, but in all of the kind of early work with the Suzuki Samurai, um, if you were, really were to look at the products we were developing, the majority of them were drivetrain uh, for no other reason than we just, I guess, like drivetrains. So when when we came up with the idea for the Spider 9, which was taking, you know, a nine inch gear set, which had been and, and still is, but was being used. But it was being used uh, a, around other components that were just off the shelf for other applications. We thought, geez, I, I think we could build uh, a product line specific for this to, for this nine inch gear set that's just for rock crawling and so we 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 came up with the spider nine and this was an end-to-end product so we were making everything now we were making the the housing the axle shafts the steering knuckles um we were uh, well making the the unit bearings at the time we're really modifying a, a one-time unit bearing at the time the early days and so we were we were building all of these components so that when it was all said and done you weren't hodgepodging stuff together because that's kind of what you were doing before. Um, you're going to get everything in one shot. And it's a builder's axle, so we don't have to necessarily put it together and put it on a pallet. We can sell it to you in a builder form so you can get the parts and 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 kind of cut down the housing where you need to and put it together. So it was it was a, it was a new idea at the time. Um, obviously, Dynatrack and Curry had, had a presence then uh, every 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 bit so um as they do today but um they their focus had always been on you know building you a complete rear end um uh not you know this is a builder's axle for a competitor where you can kind of put it together yourself so that was kind of our angle at the time and and officially that kind of broke in 2005 and that was that was really our focus um so everything we were doing from there on the competitive side uh was around that axle okay what I noticed, what well, what I not not necessarily what I noticed, but what I believe is that the competitive scene of rock crawling really pushed the aftermarket scene for the enthusiast, where the enthusiast said, "I want my vehicle, whether it's a tube chassis vehicle or just their Jeep or Samurai or Toyota pickup truck." to be able to look like or do what these guys are doing in competition. And I really think that that helped the aftermarket get to where it's at today. I, you know, I, I agree with you. It got to a point where we were able to build these, you know, spider nine components such that the way you were building a rear end before was you'd go to the junkyard, you'd, you'd find a particular rear end that you thought was suitable for your application, a lot of work and, modifying it, cleaning it up, trimming it out, trying to get it set and ready to go. And by the time you were done with all that, it, we weren't that far off in price. I mean, of course, it's going to be more money to build something new from from scratch, but it wasn't outrageously far off. So it became a ki- kind of a much easier sell to say, look, if you are watching these comp guys 
and you see that they're getting through a competition, I mean, people are no longer breaking things anymore, right? So now, you know, where you remember the early days, you would have uh, multiple spare axle shafts and drive shafts. I mean, now you're getting through an event and you don't have a single failure. You know, you put the vehicle back in the trailer and you're going home. So that would be nice. It would be nice to go trail riding and and, and get home, you know, in one piece. That would be that would be wonderful. Absolutely. And if the price isn't so outrageously far off, okay, yeah, let me take a look at that. And so absolutely, you know, with with whether it was full tube chassis vehicles for for trail like uh, Twisted Customs at the time, or if you were just building up your own vehicle for the trail, uh, these be, these components became more and more sense um, as you wanted to push yourself maybe a little bit harder on the trail, maybe not at the comp level. But a little bit harder than your friends anyway. And uh, so that that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I can remember during that time where everything was, was, was moving along in the aftermarket, I sponsored Bob Rogie and Mike Schaefer at, I think it was the first U-Rock event. Nice. And Schaefer, I went with them. It was in St. George, Utah. I get handed these this hub wrench and which is with a t allen wrench basically and warren hub fuses (laughs) the warren hub fuses i remember that (laughs) i've got pockets of these things right because on every course they would break one and so that we would change them out before the next course yep and i'm like this is absolutely ridiculous I don't know how long those hub fuses were on the market. I know they were really oh popular that year because I I carried so many of them at just that one event. I, I would imagine yep. that others were using them as well, but it kept from breaking axles. Um, you know, you'd have that fuse. Yep. But it, to me, that was it, just the craziest stuff. I, I, I love that you mentioned this product. It's one of my favorite products because... It, I, it's the product. I, I know it's one of those products that really transformed our thinking. So these hub fuses come out and I remember at first thinking, well, that's a genius idea, you know, and then immediately moving to, well, wait a minute, why don't we just make the axle shaft stronger? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then we don't, and then we don't break anything. And I honestly, there's, there's a number of things that helped uh, push us to the spider nine line. That is definitely one of them. I'll I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that conversation with the Warren Hupfuse saying, and yeah, I, I, Mike Schaefer might have even been part of that now that we're mentioning it. He's an early Suzuki Samurai guy for those that don't know. And um, I, I remember having that conversation saying, why don't we just make the shaft stronger? Like, and we just don't break anything and do the event, you know, like that's an idea. You know? And then we just kind of, then we kind of moved on, you know, started thinking a little bit different. Why don't we make these components, right? Why are we, why are we re- so reliant on, you know, the two OE axle shaft manufacturers in the States? You know, why don't we just make our own shaft? You know, that's, that sounds crazy, right? So, yeah, I remember that. That's funny. So then where, when did the rock bug come about? How and why? And I know that, I know part of that was trying to get as lightweight as possible, but let's first talk on, on, when yeah so this is all detailed on the blog if you go to spider tracks and click on blog which i guess by today's standards is a very old term but it's still there (laughs) um that that was kind of the inspiration of getting a blog right so this is 2011 this is um you know for me at least in my mindset this is the time when social media is like a thing now 
Um, people are making blogs and kind of telling their story more than relying on the more traditional means of having their stories being told, like a magazine is, is what I would traditionally go back to. So we, we wanted to create a blog. We wanted to kind of showcase the, the different things that we do with spider tracks. So why don't we do something crazy? I don't know. Let's work with Tracy and build a car. And we were, we were not in the business of building vehicles at this time. So this was not uh, a mechanism to uh, create a line of vehicles. It never was. It was never our intention. Um, and of course, it, it never became that. But that, that was never our focus. It was, it was really just to, to try to get our feet wet and kind of showing off what we do and, and, and figuring out how to run a blog and kind of tell a, a story in the very early days of social media. And it was such a, a big deal for us because we, we had built vehicles before, usually just, you know, personal vehicles. And, and we would have those vehicles featured in magazines. I mean, that's what you did. So I remember the Arachnid, the, which was a Suzuki Samurai that we built out, real gorgeous vehicle um, that was built out for uh, four-wheel drive and sport utility. So this, the idea that we would build this vehicle and just show everything that we're doing. So, the, you know, the complete opposite of kind of that older school, you know, early team thinking that we talked about where you're going to keep this a secret and that a secret because it's a competition, which rightfully so. We're going to work with a guy that's just, you know, one of the best uh you know one of the best rock crawlers out there so why don't we just reveal everything i mean everything we'll talk about the components and the weights and how we're making them and how we made the bolts and how we made the engine work and so it was just like everything out in the open kind of experiment and uh that all i think kicked off in 2011 if i remember correctly on the blog and and you could follow that along if you if you go to the blog and click on the rock bug tag um, I mean, it's like uh, every couple of days, I mean, we're posting things and that whole build is revealed. Uh, a lot of fun. I mean, really is just what it came down to. It was just a, a wickedly fun build to demonstrate, you know, kind of how how to how to show how a build goes. Obviously, the purpose of the build was, you know, for us, it was cutting edge. The cutting edge line was really just, you know, very lightweight vehicle. We had a couple new ideas we wanted to experiment with. We're going to use this vehicle to do that. And uh, the rock bug was born. That was it. Yeah, I, I remember two things about that vehicle. First of all, everything on that vehicle seemed to be gun drilled. <laughs> everything, everything had holes in it. Yeah, everything the bolts, had the holes. The bolts were hollow. Yeah, we made every bolt. They were all hollow. <laughs> <laughs> every bolt hollow. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing is, is I remember asking you at one of the first events that it showed up to at We Rock. And you were there, and I said, "Okay, what would it cost to re to to build this car from scratch? <laughs> if you were going to build, you know, if you're going to build a second one, and you go, I don't want to know the price because I'm never going <laughs> to build another one." That sounds right. That's, that's accurate. <laughs> you were just like, you know, matter of fact, no, there will never be another Spider Tracks rig built. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this was not a financial move. It was, uh, but it, but it was kind of a, it was an exercise more than anything. Um, and uh, and it was to you know again to just kind of kind of get get our feet wet and and being a little bit more open and kind of how we work and how we do things and kind of share our, our experiences with it, you know, because uh, um, yeah, a lot of that stuff gets gets kind of left behind the scenes and obviously all the work that you're doing, like you're doing today with the podcast and all. I mean, this is all very good stuff. Um, you know, back then it was still a lot of secrecy. So um, that was kind of the experiment there. And, uh, you know, then of course the vehicle 
of course it did very well. I mean, it was, it was a very lightweight vehicle. Uh, I, I, if, if I remember correctly, we clocked under 2000, but I'll, I'll go back and double check that on the blog. And, um, and it had a rear steer option, but he could swap that in and out. And, um, and of course, Tracy's just an amazing driver and he just, he did amazing things with the vehicle. It was a lot of fun. And I, I remember that it, it was a two seater because I believe it did run in the, uh, in the pro mod class as well, because it had the bolt on bumper at some point. Yes. Yes. Because I remember Tracy left it at an event with somebody and said, tell little rich, he can shove this. He didn't say (laughs) he didn't, I'm not going to say where he told him he could shove it, but (laughs) he did not like having a bumper on there. Uh, that's that's that uh, i you know i don't remember that but i believe it 100 so. <laughs> percent. yeah and it was and so the rock bug i think the idea at the time was we uh, obviously we are still you know then and, and even still today you know very into rock crawling but there was this other kind of thing going on that was taking you know arguably rock crawling to that next step which was rock racing we kind of talked about that a little bit before yes now that started a few years before this but that was that was changing just as radically as rock crawling was year over year and it just didn't seem to be stopping anytime soon and that was kind of the head scratcher so when we built the rock bug the idea was this would be you know a a world-class rock crawler that could also be competitive in rock racing and you know he he did hold one place at the stampede he did very well with the vehicle but the vehicle was getting quickly quickly outclassed on the rock racing side that sport was changing dramatically and so um and so that was interesting to watch as well and so the rock bug really never catapulted or transformed into rock racing um it it, even that build was becoming very quickly outclassed in that sport. Right. And that, and that, that genre of rock motorsports is still accelerating. The technology is accelerating to this day um, at the same pace that it did early. And, it feels like it. And it, it's amazing that, that it, that there's any more room for growth but it's amazing that that it keeps doing it that people keep finding ways to improve and i think that i truly think that what the guys doing that sport right now have created or are creating in the areas that they're working in with with this four wheel drive suspension technology is transferring over into the desert scene as well. More and more trophy trucks are coming out four-wheel drive. Um, underdrives, overdrives, all the different, you know, I, I'm, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a builder, fab guy, I don't know all the, the specifics, but, you know, there a lot of that stuff seems to be transferring over to that side of the sport where at the beginning we were taking what they were trying to do in the desert and trying to adapt it to four-wheel drive to make the buggies go quicker. Yeah, it's I the the blend is interesting, you know, for for us we didn't have a trophy truck background, so the the movement was from rock crawling to rock racing and four-wheel drive was not an option. You know, you you couldn't show up with two-wheel drive. So we didn't know any better. You know, for us you needed four-wheel drive, 
and we have to figure out how to make four wheel drive, you know, last an, an insane event like King of the Hammers. You know, the idea that you would, you know, race in the desert, race through all these rocks, you know, something that would take somebody one to two weeks to do in a trail rig. You're going to just do it in a few hours. And by the way, you need to come back and not break anything. Yeah. And so we didn't know any better, you know, for us that, that was the sport. So we're like, well, we need to, now we really need to get into metallurgy. We need to get into heat treat. We need to get into some very specific stuff and we need to make all this stuff ourselves because you know, that, that axle shaft, that component, I, I think it's possible, but we're going to, we're going to need to pull off some stuff we've never done before. And, you know, you fast forward these, these vehicles cross the finish line at King of the Hammers. I mean, they're, they're fully running vehicles. I mean, it's insane. And so now we get the enjoyment of saying, you know, our focus had always been four-wheel drive. And so when you look at other sports where four-wheel drive was an option and it was a, a wickedly difficult option because a lot of the stuff at the time didn't work, why don't we just simplify it and use two-wheel drive? Now they're coming back and looking. I know there's crossover here because they're looking back at a lot of the stuff we're doing. And a lot of stuff we're doing is, is finding its way into that market where we had, we've solved some problems that haven't been solved yet. And that's a lot of fun. And so now we're seeing a lot more blend between the the different markets of, you know, desert sports and the rock racing uh, where components are now being shared back and forth because we, we, we have managed to solve some problems that haven't been solved before. And that, that's very fun. Yeah, because, I mean, when you're running at the top levels in, in any kind of motorsports, there's like, let's say, trophy truck. If you're going to dwell into the four-wheel drive side of it and try to try to get the fastest vehicle you can out of four-wheel drive in a desert scenario, you're not going to, you're not going to be competitive to begin with. You're going to go through a lot of testing at races in that kind of an environment. And that's mm -hmm. really costly in a trophy truck campaign. It, so, it is. Yeah. So, so let the four-wheel drive guys develop that technology because what a lot of people don't understand is is when you get into that mass amount of movement um which is you know i'm talking about the ifs what it creates is not only you know all of the the angles and geometry that's going into just the wheel movement up and down and making the axle shafts and the center section and everything else that's just part of the drivetrain. But then you got to throw in the steering components as well. Yes. And, you know, having to marry those two plus to the rest of the vehicle and to get the, the weight biases and everything to work the way it's, it needs to work to survive is incredible. And what, what companies have done um, is insane. And I know that you guys have worked really heavy into um, the unibearings. Um, you guys are creating the um, actual shafts and center sections as well, aren't you, for some of those? Yes. Yeah, we are. Okay. That's uh, It's amazing to me what what you guys do as engineers. What's also amazing, I will say about engineers, is that and something I've always said about engineers is that everybody that, that gets a degree in engineering before they go into their trade, whether it's, let's say, an automotive a designer, they need to work on the other end as a mechanic before they draw it out on paper. Oh, yeah, they should. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they should. Because I, they got to know that it, it's going to work not only in, on paper – 
but in real life. Like, who designed putting a starter underneath an intake manifold? <laughs> that guy should be shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, I you know that lesson was learned so early on. I I had some professors in in school who um I, I still talk to this day. I mean they're great they're great guys, but when I was uh when I was working on that uh that that manufacturing floor, the center of manufacturing systems, you know, one one of the responsibilities we had was to, you know, make some parts for the professors. They had some projects, some lab they were doing, so forth, et cetera. They they would constantly give us drawings that could not be manufactured. <laughs> something as simple as a, a pocket with square corners. And, uh, you know, you would think that's no big deal. Well, I, I can't machine that. You know, I'm using an end mill. I need, a, I need a corner with a radius. and The larger, the better, right? So what can we do? Uh, there, there was almost not a single professor that could provide me a print of something that could be made. And I remember early on thinking, I, I will never do that, right? I'm, I'm always going to be able to run a machine. I think that's such an important thing that you don't want to lose. And and to and to your point on the on the mechanical side, it's the same thing. You 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 don't want to design something that you haven't actually put together yourself, be, because you, it may not go together quite as easy as you thought. You know what I mean? So you right. better be a good listener, if anything. So one of the <laughs> one of the things that that I always go back to on on that whole scenario is my dad was when he when he retired, he was a model maker. So that means he had gone through mm. being a basic machinist. Um, everything he did was with like Bridgeport mills, all manual, never, oh, never yeah. worked with CNC. So everything he did was, you know, it was hands-on. Um, he retired at 55 years old with 38 years in the government. So that means he started at 17 and wow. he, he went through all the levels as a machinist, um, tool and die maker, model maker, you know, all those steps. And one of the things when he worked for the San Francisco Mint, is that they had been working on this project with the Susan B. Anthony coin. And they came to a meeting where he was involved in it. And he listened to what they, what these people, the designers of this coin were saying <laughs> and what they were going to do. Because my dad at that time, what his job was, was to make sure that their machining could make the dies to press the coins, but also all the machinery to put them into proof sets because San Francisco was the proof was where all the proof coining was done. Yeah. So, you know, all the high end stuff and he starts laughing and they're going, what's the problem? He goes, this will never work. Your coin design <laughs> is bullshit and you got to start over. And they had, to, <laughs> they had a quite a few years involved in this thing and they go, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you have, 360 degrees, everything that we machine has to be done in, you know, every corner has to be an equal, you know, degree or something. I don't know what the exact terminology was, but you have, you want to make this coin 11-sided. He goes, yeah. first of all, if we could machine it that way, which we can't, that's a start. <laughs> he goes, the next thing you have is you have coin machines that you're going to want to use these coins in. Mm -hmm. Whether they be toll booths, whether they be, you know, convenience stores or, you know, um, you know, that a drink machine, whatever dispenser, you're never going to get an, a coin with sides to roll down the coin slots. And all these <laughs> engineers looked at each other like, oh, <laughs> shit. 
<laughs> it's so great because it's such an obvious thing, but you're so wrapped up on a print, you you can lose sight of what would be deemed the obvious. And if you lock yourself in a room and don't get out on the floor and actually work on this stuff, it's so easy to do. Yep. And they had they had a, a program then in the government. I don't know if they still do which they called beneficial suggestion. And that was anybody that worked for the government could, you know, you couldn't have your own patent if you develop something. Uh, Correct. You know, you were, it's like if you worked for IBM, you know, that's, you made it for IBM. You were under the clock for them. So they yes. had this beneficial suggestion and it was called a Benny Sug. And you would get a bonus based on what the, what, what it made for the government or what it saved the government. And he ended up with a lot of those because of these kind of meetings. But (laughs) if I remember right, that one was probably the one that got him the best because at that point, everything had to stop because they were getting ready to start to try to produce these coins and had spent years trying to do it. So it's just a a fun fact about what I always remember (laughs) about engineers. They got to have, you got to have, real life hands-on experience before, you know, making an 11 sided coin or putting a <laughs> starter in underneath the intake manifold. I completely agree. <laughs> so <laughs> what are some of the things that, uh, that are happening now with your life in spider tracks? Yeah. I mean, as we're still doing the things that we've always done. We're, we're very much a drivetrain focused company and we make performance drivetrain components. We do all the things that you see in the competition side. We have the uh, products that are a little bit more bolt-on friendly too for more of the trail rigs. And uh, some of the stuff that people don't see, uh, you know, certainly on the website, some of the stuff that's a little bit more behind the scenes are uh, some of the light tactical uh, vehicle work that we do for the military. And uh, that that is really fun and, and really rewarding because uh, these are the products that we've developed over over the course of many years to to be able to do all the insane things that these drivers do with them and uh they they found their way in a number of light tactical vehicles because they work uh they survive they they don't break like other things break and uh just like it used to be magic for me to watch you know, uh, Nelson take a tiny and crawl up a wall because he had weight in the tires. I mean, a lot of the stuff I think is kind of magical today that we're able to push these vehicles as hard as we do. And they, they stay together. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. So there's, there's a lot of that going on as well. And, uh, so yeah, we're just staying really busy with all the stuff that we have always done. Excellent. And family wise, I know that you have a number of kids yeah, my, my family has grown. So, uh, uh, still married, which is amazing. She's still with me. That's great. And we have, uh, we have four kids. So four kids. yeah, we're, we're a pretty big family. Uh, you know, I, I, my house is like 10 minutes away from the, from the shop here. And I, I, I cannot complain. I mean, it's every day is not the easiest, but, but I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very fortunate and very blessed in that sense. So, so yeah, I, I get to come home for lunch and see my family, and uh, and we're doing really well out here in Colorado, actually. Excellent, that's good to hear. And I want to say um, one of the things that I want to make sure that I say is thank you very much for being a supporter of the sport, um, not just through the drivers that you've helped through the years, but also the promoters, whether it's um, you know 
ARCA back in the day or U-Rock or Ultra 4 or We Rock, Cal Rocks, I just want to say thank you so much for the support that you've given the sport side of it as well. A lot of, a lot of people don't realize that, that the, the events wouldn't be there without marketing partners, even though there's lots of drivers that want to do it, you know, and, and that it's a, a, a sports or that are continually growing that the, you know, the, the guys behind the scenes that are putting the events on need that support as well. And I want to say thank you very much for, for doing that over the years. That's awesome. Thanks, Big. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely our pleasure, and it's an honor to work with everybody. It's it's a lot of fun, and I can't imagine doing anything different. Cool. So is there anything that we have not discussed that you think our listeners would want to listen or to know about? So, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I love everything we talked about. I think it's great. I'm not very good at that, so I'm not sure. Um, I... I'm trying to, is there anything new we're working on people might want to talk about? Is there something else in our history that maybe we didn't cover? Um, new would be interest would be great. I know that a lot of guys don't like to talk about things that are in development. If you don't, don't get into too much detail because, you know, there are trade secrets. Um, thanks to John Nelson, you know, I mean, that's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's good. We, we, we try to, we try to not do that. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, like one of the new things that we're developing that I'm, I'm really, really excited about. We have a, we, we probably have more invested in this this one product than any single product in the company's history. And this is a, a new U-joint uh, that we're developing. And uh, we, we teased it a little bit just so people knew we, we were working on something because I think people were wondering if we were even, you know, thinking of working on something. But, yeah, uh, it, it does get a little bit more complicated now. I mean, the company is a, a little bit bigger than it used to be. And so uh, it, you go back to the rock bug days, I, I would just show every single day the, the development of this U-joint. But then, um, and rightfully so, I, I hear from my sales team that says, you know, the phone's constantly ringing for this thing and it's not even a product we're selling. Like, we can't do this, you know? <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. So uh, you, kind of, kind of the golden rule behind the scenes here is, uh, for anything that's in development that we are um, that we, we don't have a, re- a, a release date for, like a very specific release date for, where we we have had the tendency to keep uh, quiet on it. Now that said, the allowance for teasing has been much through uh, partners, people we work with, uh, drivers uh, predominantly. So uh, in the case of the U joint, Lauren Healy has gotten a lot of time. He's one of the drivers that has a lot of time on the new U-joints that we're developing. And he's he's gotten a chance to show them off quite a bit. And so people get to learn a, a lot about what we're doing there, although they don't get all the details, but um, but they learn about a lot of what we're doing there. And then you come to our side and you see it's very quiet. And uh, that's hard. That's hard for me because I'd love to share everything. But <laughs> the U-joint, uh, I'm, you know, I am happy to talk about that one. Um, that there's There's a lot in that and uh, we're actually going through the final final phases of manufacturing now just dialing in uh, tooling and some last uh last bit of fixturing to start uh, small production runs on that we're ready to move forward on it so that's going to be a good one. Oh, that's awesome glad to hear that so then i guess the next thing that i'm going to ask you and put you on the on the hot seat is there a question that you've always wanted to ask me that you've never asked or something that that you know about me that you want to ask so that maybe the view the listeners will get a chance to to know about it 
Oh, I love that. Uh, that's great, actually. You know, um, and if you've answered this before, because um, it's it's kind of such a general question, you probably have gotten it before, but I don't know the answer. So I'm going to be selfish and just ask you, what got you going with We Rock? What got that started? Well, it's it it can be a long question or a long answer, <laughs> but I'm going to try to shorten it up and, and just jump into the high points. I got to go four-wheeling in a four-wheel drive vehicle on the Rubicon my first time in like 1984, I believe it was. And I fell in love immediately with the sport. It was, uh, I'd always backpacked. I'm an Eagle Scout, had spent a lot of time up in the Sierras. And it was such a way to go see more and without having to carry a backpack, which um, meant a lot to me. I carried one for <laughs> way too many years. And it was, uh, it was something I instantly got into. And then I moved because of work, I chased a job to Cedar City, Utah, ah, and got involved with the four-wheel drive community there. Guys like Dean Bullock and yep, uh, Buzzy Bronsema and um, Phil Doc Phil Smith and some of the guys that were, you know, some of the early wheelers out in that area. Yes, and became the club president. Arca was getting started. They were looking for locations. As a club, we we approached them and got them to come to Cedar City. I helped with the Cedar City event. Then I started helping with some other events. And I knew that at that point I was going to move back to California, back to the Sierra Nevada foothills. And when I made, before that decision to actually move and, you know, setting the date, um, I'd always said that, you know, I'm going to do this when I move back to California. And so I looked and at what, what year is this now? What's what time frame are we at now? I moved back to California in 2000. Okay. Yeah. See, we're all connecting here. That's hysterical. Yep. I love it. And yep. so I was talking to um, a guy and he goes, Hey, I got it. When you come back to California, I got a perfect location for you to do the event that you want to do. And I said, okay, great. And <laughs> it was um, Randy Burleson. And okay. so I met with him when I moved back to California. I looked at the place. It was Lake Amador in outside of Plymouth, outside of, yeah, in that central California area, outside of Stockton. Yep. And I went for it. And put on nice. that first event. And the reason, but the reason I did it was because I was watching, I consider myself, or at least I was at that point, really organized. Maybe I didn't, I still don't write everything down. Um, luckily, I have Shelly who loves to take notes. And so she writes everything <laughs> down. But I knew that putting something together like that, an event, that I could do, I thought I could do a really good job of putting on a great competition and a good event. Um, where some of the other guys were putting on great events, but maybe the competition was lacking. And I don't mean the drivers, I just mean the way the competition was ran. Sure. So I approached the beginning of Cal Rocks 
a little differently, and we focused on the competition and the drivers more so than on the event. And yep. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm still doing this after 20 years. Um, this will be our 20th year of seasons and actually 21st year of putting on event an event. So I'm, uh, I think that longevity has been a sign of either being, <laughs> being addicted to the sport or yep. being just too stupid to quit. Yes. <laughs> I don't know which it is. <laughs> no, and, and being smart about it too. You know, I, I, we went through that transition with the, the other organization that was going to just be the biggest thing in the world, right? They were going to take over TV and it was just going to be this huge, huge thing. And it's, it's fun to think big. There's nothing wrong with thinking big and you, you want to have, you know, big dreams for sure. But, you know, is there, is there a backup plan? Like what if it doesn't work out, you know, and, um, you, you're, you're, your approach is is just like you said you're addicted you don't know how to quit um but you you know how to put on an event within the the confines of the event you know it's right. it's um it, it's it's sustainable and it's realistic and it's an absolute uh, a blast and it has everything that we want so um when all of that fell apart you uh continue to go <laughs> it's yes. like okay we could we could still do this hang on and uh that i think that's fantastic so um I, I appreciate that by the way thank you yeah no worries um i think it's been good for the sport i just hope that as i get closer and closer to retiring myself someday that uh, somebody will step up and um be that next person to to take the sport into the next 20 years is i would i i Yes, I'm with you 100. percent That's a tough. That's a tough position to fill. So I don't know if anybody um, wants want to work it. that hard, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, man, that's awesome. So, Tom, thank you so much for coming on board with us and um, sharing your life and the history of uh, yourself in four wheel drive and spider tracks. Really appreciate the conversation today, and I think it was a great interview. Thanks, Big. It's a pleasure to be on here. I really appreciate you inviting me on, and uh, congratulations on the podcast. It's, it's great. Well, thank you very much. Okay, and thank you, and we'll talk again later. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram, and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.